1: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies. I'm Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, we interview the author or editor of a new book in Genocide Studies. This time, I'm thrilled to have Jenny Burnett on the show. Jenny is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Louisville and has written a wonderful new book about the aftermath of genocide in Rwanda, titled Genocide Lives in Us, Women, Memory, and Silence in Rwanda, and published by the University of Wisconsin Press, The book examines the lasting impact of the violence in Rwanda, especially in the 1990s and first decade of this century. Jenny examines not just the immediate aftermath of genocide, but the complicated military and political conflicts of the following years and their effects on individual and communal attempts at recovery and reconciliation. The book focuses on women, but has much to say about broader aspects of the Rwandan attempt to live in the aftermath of genocide. I particularly appreciated her ability to combine political and social analysis with narratives of individual experiences. I'm looking forward to talking about her or with her about the book and the process of writing it. So, welcome, Jenny, and thanks so much for agreeing to be on the show.
0: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here.
1: Let's start our conversation just by giving you a chance to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be an academic who studies Rwanda.
0: Okay. Um, well. It goes back till to when I was in high school, and uh, I became a human rights activist with Amnesty International. Uh, in fact, initially, um, I joined because a friend told me about the organization, and I thought that was inter- interesting to defend human rights. Uh, I had to ask her what human rights were. Um, and then uh, it was especially great for me when I came home from an Amnesty International meeting and told my father where I'd been, and he got very angry. So I was certain that I was going to stay a member of the organization <laughs> then, Um, Sort of a safe (laughs) rebellion against my parents. Um, But I continued my work with Amnesty International, doing grassroots human rights organizing all the way through college. And then when I graduated college, I found a job as a technical writer doing fundraising uh, for not-for-profit organizations in the United States. Um, I enjoyed the job. I learned quite a lot doing it, um, but I knew I didn't want to stay in that for uh, the rest of my career. And I eventually decided to go back to graduate school Um And at the time I graduated from college, it was right when the genocide in Rwanda was going on. Um, At that time, I didn't watch the news on a daily basis, but I began to pay attention. Um, And in particular, I was bothered by the way the genocide was explained in materials coming from Amnesty International. Um, They said things like tall people were killing other people because they were short I mean, the other way around, actually, short people were killing other people because they were tall, um, because they were Hutu and Tutsi, and it just didn't make sense with anything I knew um, about human motivations to violence and those kinds of things. So I was – I was troubled by the explanation. Um, And so that's what drew my attention to Rwanda. And I eventually applied to graduate school. I decided to uh, apply to anthropology programs because I thought uh, that the methods of anthropology were best suited to answering the kinds of questions that interested me. Um, And in addition, I found that uh, the methods of anthropology best fit with what I like to do. I like to sit down and talk to people um, at the most basic level that is what the method of anthropology, cultural anthropology is, is sitting down and talking to people. Um, And so I uh, started a graduate program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I was lucky enough to find two of the leading specialists on Rwanda at the university, uh, Catherine Newberry, who was in the political science department at that time, and David Newberry, who was in the history department at that time. So I worked closely with them, as well as with uh, anthropologists who had um, been studying war um, and identity, uh, such as Catherine Lutz and uh, Dorothy Holland, um, as well as many others in the department. So that's sort of how I got interested and in developed this project. Um, initially, my project, I was planning to look at what was the daily life of war like for noncombatants. Um, and uh, by the time I went to Rwanda for the first time in 1997, uh, as a graduate student, um, I found that Rwandans weren't really willing at that point in time to talk about the past to talk about the genocide and there's a variety of reasons for that Um, and so my project evolved and instead I focused on sort of the everyday life of the aftermath of genocide and the aftermath of conflict and how do people rebuild their lives and how do they uh, try to recreate a meaningful life in the aftermath of unimaginable violence
1: yeah you you talked a little bit about how anthropologists answer questions and I know some of our listeners uh, will have a background in anthropology but many will not can you can you say a little bit more about how anthropologists would approach the kind of questions you ask and the kind of research process you went through
0: sure I mean uh historically the defining methodology of anthropology is what's called participant observation um, at its most basic level it means participating in the activity that you're Observing, um, so uh, how you do that in any given situation um, can result in a wide variety of things. Um, for me, what it meant, since I was focusing on women and women's organizations in Rwanda, it meant that I became member mem- a member of several. Rwandan women's associations, Um, I would attend meetings um, Mm -hmm. as a member, but sometimes associations uh, would invite me as an observer as well. So I would participate in meetings of the women's associations. Uh, I lived for a year on a hill in rural Rwanda. At that time, the community did not have running water. It did not have electricity. Uh, it, um, didn't have regular public transportation to town. Um, it was, uh, 20 kilometers from the nearest town. So driving, I bought this old beat up pickup truck um, who I called Esmeralda. And uh, I took Esmeralda and I usually about 30 minutes to get to town on good days. The longest it ever took me was eight hours. Uh, one day during the rainy season and Esmeralda got stuck in several mud pits and had two flat tires. Uh, there is no AAA in Rwanda. So uh, when I got the flat tire, the first time I got a flat tire, I changed it myself. I was very quick with changing tires. Um, But the second flat tire, I then had to uh, find someone who was willing to carry the wheel and the tire back into town, get the tire cheap for me and bring it back to me. Um, So that was uh, quite an adventure. Um, And what I discovered living in uh, rural Rwanda, I did put in a solar panel so I could run a laptop and I had some lights and I uh, could play a radio if I wanted to. Um, But what I found was it's surprisingly easy to live in a house that's set up for no running water and no electricity hmm. and I actually had quite a enjoyable life there um Rwanda is near the equator so the sun rises about 6 a.m. every day and it sets at 6 p.m. every day and um I would go to bed by you know 8 p.m. would be late because when there's no light um you don't have a lot of motivation to stay up very late um and I discovered the joys of getting plenty of sleep um and I was a much more sane person, getting eight or ten hours of sleep at night instead of my usual six that I find I fall into when I'm in the United States.
1: Well, I have to say, anthropologists sound far more hardier types than than historians, maybe.
0: Perhaps, perhaps that's true. I don't know. I, I did spend a, a summer last year uh, in an archive in Belgium, and mm. I decided I'm not cut out for history. I, <laughs> Don't find sitting uh, on a hard chair, shuffling through dusty papers, uh, all that engaging.
1: I was going to say I've not I've not done any research in, in Africa, never been to Rwanda, but I've been to Kenya uh-huh. a couple times for a while, and and I understand the experience of driving a beat up pickup over roads that would not be called roads in the United States. Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm still sometimes surprised that I made it through, but. Um, and you were – you, you, this book took a long time to write. Um, what, what kind of challenges and opportunities did it offer you to be you thinking about this and be uh, engaged and immersed in Rwanda for 13, 14, 15 years?
0: Yeah, well, what I can say is I never intended for this book to take as long as it did to write. Um, <laughs> I consider this book my first child, but it was conceived long before my biological children <laughs> was born long after they were. So um, I think uh, I think it took me a long time to uh, finish the book uh, in a format that I felt merited publication that it took me a long time to figure out what needed to be said about life in the aftermath of genocide in Rwanda, what needed to be said about women and memory, um, And uh, so there were many drafts. I mean, the first draft of this book was uh, my dissertation, which I finished in 2005. Um, It wasn't a terrible dissertation, but um, it's not the best dissertation I think was ever written. Um, But it was a good first draft. And from there, I went on to change it. Um, In addition, I think um, the methods of anthropology to arrive at valid conclusions require Uh, A lot of time, both a lot of time for gathering data um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of time for analyzing and understanding data. I think one thing that anthropology does as a social science that's quite different from the other social sciences is we have a greater demand for contextualizing uh, data in Mm -hmm. that to understand why at a specific moment a woman in a public meeting falls silent Um, takes a great deal of knowledge of culture and the history of that place um, in order to understand and interpret that silence. Um, So that's, I think, um, part of it. Um, In addition, you know, the fieldwork I did was actually quite difficult. It was difficult physically, um, but it was also terribly difficult emotionally. And um, it took me a long time, I think, to uh, come to terms with that
1: yeah um yeah, and I want to come back to that in a little okay. bit let's let's turn to the book sure. now um and one of the things I enjoyed about the book is that you're very careful to define precisely the kinds of terms and the kinds of periods you're talking about, so now I want to start just by asking you to kind of briefly recap- recapitulate some of those okay. and so so why don't we start um where many books about Rwanda end in nineteen ninety four or 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 ignore the kind of broader context after that. You're very careful to appreciate the kind of complicated course of military and political events in the following decades. So can you give the listeners a, a kind of a brief summary of the political history that forms the context for your book starting, say, in nineteen ninety and moving through the first decade of the of the century?
0: Sure. Um, so, uh, in 1990 in Rwanda, uh, President uh, Juvenal Habyarimana had been in power since 1971, um, almost 20 years. Uh, when he came to power, it was through a military coup, and then he instituted uh, what was called at the time by political scientists a single-party state. Uh, modeled in large part uh, after uh, what President Nanyeri had done in Tanzania, um, and Nanyeri had modeled his a bit off of uh, Maoist China, Um, but so in a sort of African kind of socialism, uh, all Rwandans at birth became members of the party of Javier Mana, which was um, known as MRND, uh, its acronym, Mouvement Révolutionnaire National-Démocratique. And so um, there had been basically 20 years of peace in Rwanda, but there hadn't been uh, political freedom. There wasn't a lot of space to debate things. Um, there were elections, but the elections had predetermined outcomes. So um, by 1989, um, there began to be movement within Rwanda to liberalize the political system, to allow there to be political parties. A letter was written by a group of intellectuals in 1989 demanding that Habyarimana uh, allow for democratization Um, And this is at the same moment when the international community is beginning to tie development aid to democracy, Um, not just in Rwanda, but all across Africa and uh, South America as well. Uh, And so... Um, these ideas begin to be debated, and then uh, in October of 1990, on October 1st of 1990, uh, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which is a political party and a rebel movement that was founded in Uganda among Rwandan refugees who had either fled Rwanda or had grown up in exile, um, they attack Rwanda with the intention of overthrowing Habyarimana, liberating the country, and bringing in multi-party politics. Um, so, uh, President Habyarimana was quite taken by surprise. Uh, the RPF, as they're called by their acronym, uh, actually got quite far into Rwanda um, because of the surprise. Um, the French provided some military assistance, as is as did Zaire or the Democratic Republic of the Mm -hmm. Congo, and helped repel them. And so then uh, after that, we have, Basically, uh, a prolonged civil war going on. The RPF switches to more guerrilla-style tactics uh, in their warfare, but they did occupy uh, a large section of the country. Um, And it's in 1993, finally, um, there are peace negotiations. They take place in Arusha, Tanzania. And in mid-1993, a document is signed, a peace accord is signed known as the Arusha Peace Accords. And the peace accords call for a transition to multi-party politics. Um, They call for integration of the RPF into the Rwandan military. um, And they called for uh, the registration of political parties and a competitive democracy. Now, um, Unfortunately, the peace accords didn't result in a total end of fighting. There was still ongoing um, fighting, but mostly there was a detente um, for a period of time. Um, Also in this context, uh, once multi-party politics started, and particularly after the um, RPF uh, invasion of Rwanda, um, some leaders in Javier Mana's government – including his wife, and um, even there's some evidence that he participated in this, began uh, propaganda against the RPF. Um, And the RPF was founded primarily by Tutsis, who had been in exile, um, but did include some Hutu. But the propaganda focused on um, Tutsis and said that the RPF wanted to reinstitute Um, the monarchy, and would exploit Hutu, and wanted to enslave Hutu, and these kinds of things. So you also have this racist propaganda that begins in the early 90s and continues. Um, It it continues in the form of print media, and uh, in particular on the radio. Uh, And um, so in this context, also then, uh, the political parties inside Rwanda, Founded youth wings. Um, youth in Rwanda is defined as anyone who's unmarried uh, between the mm-hmm. ages of about 17 and 30. Um, so the youth wings of political parties, those that were associated with the Hutu extremist political parties, um, they are then trained as militias. They're given military training. They're taught how to fight with weapons um, and other kinds of things. And these are the these youth wings become what are the uh, the militias during the genocide that led the mm-hmm. killing—they um, were called the Interahamwe. Is the word that most people are familiar with, but the CDR political parties was also called Muhuzi Mugambi. Essentially, Interahamwe means those who attack together. Muhuzi um, Mugambi, but it has a similar meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so these young men—they tend to, the these the men who joined the militias—they tended to be young, unemployed men uh, without land. Um, they were kind of trapped in this perpetual state of unmarried young adulthood because in Rwanda you, for a man to marry, he has to have either a job um, and the ability to support a family or he has to have farmland and a house uh, to support a family. So these men were largely locked out of any sort of social mobility and quite frustrated and so they were easily mobilized to nefarious ends. So um, things in Rwanda after the signing of the 1993 peace accords became quite tense. Um, everyone felt like something was going to happen, something bad was going to happen, but no one was quite sure what. Um, and then it's on April 6, 1994, President Habyarimana was flying back from Arusha where he was in peace negotiations. He was flying back on his presidential jet. And as the jet came in to land at the Kigali International Airport, it was shot down. Um, To this day, it's not known precisely who uh, shot the plane down. Um, There's a lot of theories. There's uh, little evidence to really make it clear who did it. Um, But what is very clear is how the Hutu extremists in the government and in the military made use of this event. Um, And what they did is they said uh, they mobilized uh, the militias and they mobilized the army and they said, listen, listen. Um, the RPF has killed our president and we have to fight them and eliminate the enemy to uh, ensure that they don't win. Um, and uh, Hutu extremists take over the government and then implement the genocide, which had been planned in advance Um, They had lists of people who should be killed uh, on the list. The initial list had prominent Tutsi uh, leaders in Rwanda, but it also had many Hutu. Um, The prime minister at the time was from one of the opposition political parties. Uh, She was a woman. She was Hutu, but she was on the list because it was known that she would oppose the genocide. Um, And she was killed in the first days, uh, along with 10 Belgian peacekeepers who were there guarding her. Uh, Also, many other prominent uh, Hutu journalist names were on the list. Um, And then uh, that's sort of how the genocide begins. Uh, In some communities, the genocide begins uh, on the early morning hours of April 7th. Uh, Other places, uh, local communities refused to implement the genocide uh, until later in April, Uh, particularly in southern Rwanda. Most of those communities uh, refused to implement the genocide until April 21st, when uh, the governor of what was then called Butari Prefecture, Butari Province, he uh, was removed from office and replaced. He had refused to implement the genocide in his province. When he's replaced, uh, the genocide then begins in the south. But in other places, it began immediately on the 7th. Um, During the genocide, uh, the instructions given in most places was to kill the RPF, kill the enemy, kill the RPF, and kill the RPF's accomplices. Um, but as Scott Strauss describes in his book um, on Rwanda, everybody understood that meant kill Tutsi. Um, and they understood that because of all the racist propaganda that had preceded it. Um, and, uh, you know, I when I'm teaching my students about Rwanda, it's often easy to imagine that for some reason Africans are quite different than we are uh Mm-hmm. United States or Canada, um, but my experience is they're not any different than us. Yes, there were racist, um, uh, racist, violent people who were happy to go out and kill Tutsis in the genocide, um, but the vast majority of the population uh, were reluctant to become involved and were pressured into becoming Hmm. I mean, other, other people's books deal much more in depth with, with that phenomenon, um, but it is an important thing to understand. Sure, genocide. sure. So then um, when the genocide is ongoing, the RPF immediately rebegins the war to take the country, um, not only because they see it as a military opportunity to win the war, but also to try to save Tutsi um, and others targeted in the genocide from the killing. Um, And they did have a, a, I don't know if it was a regiment or a battalion uh, that was stationed in the capital city at the parliament building as part of the peace accords. Um, And then they had uh, occupied the northern part of the country. So they re-began their battle. So the genocide occurs in the midst of an ongoing civil war with battle lines. Um, Those things at times became confusing and blurred. Uh, Often civilians weren't sure which side of the battle lines they were on. Um, And uh, it was often hard for Tutsis who managed to find places to hide. It was often hard for them to figure out when um, they could flee to safety behind the RPF lines. Uh, Those who did find safety with the RPF um, were protected by the RPF, and they were often the young men uh, and male civilians of fighting age were then integrated into the RPF and added to uh, their army. Um, But the genocide ends in Rwanda not when there's an international intervention, rather it ends when essentially the RPF wins the war now um several months in there finally was an international intervention led by the french known as the uh, turquoise operation and uh, french peacekeeping troops uh entered rwanda and occupied the southwestern part of the country uh in the zones where the french um occupied the country, most of the killing stopped uh they did protect tutsis if they found them alive um and then uh the genocidal government and most of the army, along with about 2 million civilians, fled Rwanda uh, when the genocide ended. They fled either because they were, had been involved in the genocide and they were fra- afraid of retribution from the RPF, um, and others fled simply because they were told that the RPF would kill them if they stayed. Um, and so they were just afraid that they would become victims of the violence um and so that's sort of my my book then focuses on the period that follows that um so after in the aftermath of the genocide you have uh the rpf occupying uh three quarters of the country you have the turquoise zone occupied by the french peacekeepers um and then you have The former governments, the militias and uh, the army, uh, most of them flee into what is then Zaire, what's today Democratic Republic of the Congo, and they end up in refugee camps. Um, It's at this point that you have this massive uh, international response, because when we see refugees in the Congo dying from dysentery, the international community says, oh, here we have innocent victims. Let's help them. Uh, And so you have this massive effort to uh, bring assistance to uh the refugees in eastern Zaire. Uh, what happens in the end then is the refugee camps come under the control of the former government and the former government begins organizing a military resistance and sending people into Rwanda to attack uh, to un, um, to try to unsettle or disrupt the RPF the, the government that the RPF founded. Um, And so it's eventually, um, the new government in Rwanda keeps saying to the international community, you have to do something about these armed groups in the camps, our security's in danger. Um, There isn't any organized response. And so it's in late 1996, in October, that um, uh, the Rwandan military, in collaboration with the Ugandans and in collaboration with some Congolese who are in exile, attack the Congo, attack Zaire uh, to dismantle the camps by force. Um, And so between 1996, uh, October, 1996 and early 1997, essentially you have this flood of refugees coming back into Rwanda, not because they chose to, but because uh, they had to decide whether to flee the fighting further into Zaire or to come back uh, to Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Um, Also in early 1997, Tanzania ejects most of the Rwandan refugees who have uh, been in uh, Western Tanzania near the border with Rwanda. So you have this massive flood of refugees coming back. Um, they're quite afraid when they arrive. They're afraid of reprisals from the RPF. Um, also, many of them uh, many of them, participated in the genocide, so they're afraid of being arrested in prison uh, for mm-hmm. what they've done. Um, but also many of those who didn't participate in the genocide uh, are also afraid um, of retribution from genocide survivors, um, fear of persecution from the government. Uh, and that's uh, the first time I went to Rwanda was in April of 1997. Um, and it was a quite tense situation. Um, at that time in Rwanda, very little had been done to repair what was destroyed in the genocide. Um, part of what was destroyed in the genocide, it was destroyed simply by the battle between the RPF and the former army. But also it was an intentional strategy of the genocidal government. As they withdrew, they intentionally destroyed the infrastructure of the country mm-hmm. to sort of leave nothing for the new government. Um and so when I first arrived in Rwanda, when you drove around the city, there were no stoplights working. Uh, the roads were full of potholes. None of the streetlights worked. Um, you weren't ever quite sure what uh, you would find inside a store because often the outside of the store would say it was a pharmacy. And then you'd go in and it was a grocery store. So you <laughs> signs to indicate what it was. Um, there were no street signs. There was very little... Um, order and um, also at that time people were afraid there were um, every night you could hear gunfire sometimes you'd hear grenades Um, it was always unclear what that was related to whether it was crime that was being committed or whether uh the new army had uh, found um, insurgents hiding somewhere. It was never quite clear what was going on. It was very difficult to get information about it. Um, so I at that t- time in Rwanda, you would not see civilians walking the streets after dark, uh, hmm. which these days in Rwanda is completely different. The streets are flooded huh. with people in the evening hours. There are streetlights. There are operating stoplights. Um Uh, I mean, Rwanda today is one of the few places where I don't feel afraid walking alone after dark. Um, I don't do that in my own city where I live now in Mm. Louisville, Kentucky. I uh, avoid walking alone after dark. Um, In Rwanda, I don't uh, feel in danger when I'm walking
1: after dark by
0: myself. There's very little crime uh, in the streets of Rwanda these days.
1: That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Um, So – so much of your book ad- addresses this question of how people tried to tried to live in the aftermath of, of this conflict and in the midst of this conflict since as, as you just suggested the conflict itself continues long after 1994 yes so let's start how did the Rwandan government um, attempt to address the genocide to remember the genocide to respond to the genocide? Um, what is the kind of top-down understanding of, of of the genocide, and how did they try and make sure it didn't happen again?
0: Yes. Um, so then the RPF, after they uh, win the war uh, in July of 1994, they put in place a new government uh, to call the government the Government of National Unity. Um, they announced that there will be an initial transition period of five years in which Um, People would be appointed uh, to the cabinets and to the parliament according to the distribution of seats outlined in the Arusha Peace Accords. Um, However, they do outline that any of the political parties uh, who promoted the genocide or implemented the genocide would be excluded from the new government. Um, But in general, the appointments uh, in the new government followed the outlines of the Arusha Peace Accords. Um, And then uh, in the immediate months afterwards, there was just uh, an attempt to meet the basic needs of the surviving population. Um, You know, I think it's hard for us to imagine, but, you know, how do you have a government's when uh, you might have a building, a government building, but inside it there are no desks, there are no chairs, there's no pieces of paper, there's no pencils. Um, how do you create a government from nothing? Um, so the first few months, essentially because it was the best the best that they could do. Um, the army uh, would run the local government administra- administration. There would be local government administrators appointed. Um, but then uh, there was a, a decision in the new government that they had to prosecute those who had committed genocide. Um, and so in 1994, uh, late 1994, early 1995, you had this initiative to write a law um, to outline what is the crime of genocide and how should it be punished? Um, and that law uh, established four categories of responsibility for the genocide. Um, category one being the most heinous crimes and cat- category four being the lowest level crime. So the kinds of things that fell into category one were planning the genocide, uh, part, uh, organizing massacres, uh, uh, murder, uh, sexual torture, those kinds of crimes ended up in category one. Um, category two was um, cases of simple murder, participation in groups that killed. Um, category three were uh, lower level crimes such as participating in parties, that are in sort of groups that were looking for people in hiding. Um, turning people over to be killed by others. And category form is essentially property crimes. There was a lot of property crime associated with the genocide. Houses were looted and destroyed. Uh, Livestock was stolen, slaughtered and eaten. Um, Simple household items, clothing were also stolen. Um, And um, I know early on in my research, it was actually the very first time I went to Rwanda in 1997. Um, I interviewed... Uh, A genocide widow in the south of Rwanda, and I said, What do you think about reconciliation? And she became quite angry. Um, And she said something essentially like, You foreigners, you come here and ask such stupid questions. (laughs) How can you ask me about reconciliation when my neighbor's children are wearing my dead children's clothing? when they're eating their dinner off of my table and sitting on my chairs and cooking their food in pots, they stole from my house. How can you ask me about reconciliation? Um, when I'm here in my house and I have nothing and everything I had before is either destroyed or it's been taken by them. Um, and so I think, um, I learned my lesson very quickly, uh, not to ask about reconciliation.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: Um, That doesn't mean that there wasn't reconciliation, didn't happen, but um, it wasn't the right way to go about understanding that phenomenon. And uh, so, um, but anyways, the the government's attempt to address it, that was initially what they did. Um, Things that came later on was um, the creation of genocide memorial sites. Mm -hmm. Um, One aspect of the genocide, which is often difficult to comprehend, you have Um, approximately 800,000 people um, killed in the span of four months in Rwanda. Um, That is a lot of dead bodies. (laughs) And um, often uh, at large massacre sites, um, which often occurred in churches, schools, government offices, uh, in some places, the bodies were just left in situ where they were. Um, for a while, the government maintained some of those sites, particularly those that occurred in churches, um, as is, um, as uh, memorial sites um, and as physical evidence of the genocide. Um, later, there were efforts to gather the remains and to bury them in uh, mass graves um, and consecrate, give them consecrated burials. Um, Usually at most of those burial ceremonies, there would be a Catholic priest, um, a Protestant pastor and a Muslim imam to, uh, consecrate the graves. Um, and the reason, the decision to make them mass graves, there, there were a couple of motivations. One is that many of those who died don't have anyone left alive Mm -hmm. to give them burials. Um, Mm -hmm. um, but also, uh, the government decided that it, it was more appropriate to, um, even for those who, those victims who might have uh, remaining family members, there was still better in terms of national memory to bury them all in centralized sites. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that happened, and this began as early as 1995, was that every April there is a national month of mourning. Uh, for the genocide, um, uh, most of the time uh, that I was living in Rwanda between one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine and two thousand and one uh, the that it was a week. It it was a week initially that it was an entire month, but the first week of it was the most important period. At that time, it began on April 1st um, and ended on April 7th. During that week, all nightclubs would be closed. Uh, The national radio station only played uh, what they called appropriate music to the situation. There would be ceremonies held um, always on April 7th. Um, But the entire month, people would uh, observe Uh, a more a period of mourning for the genocide Um, in later years um, I'm not sure exactly when it was around 2006 I think the government changed that practice um, and now in Rwanda uh, the period of mourning for the genocide begins on April 7th um, and it draws to a close on July 4th um, which is now celebrated as liberation day Um, And so it's that entire period. Um, These days in Rwanda, during that period of time, um, schools or universities will schedule a time during that period to make a pilgrimage to a genocide memorial site to go and have a ceremony to give respect to the dead. Um, but that's an important part of sort of a national memory for the genocide to ensure that it's not forgotten. Uh, another aspect of the government's program to ensure that genocide would never happen again in Rwanda is its policy of national unity. Um, since its founding as a uh, political party and rebel movement in exile, the Rwandan Patriotic Front had its its policy of national unity. Um, and they taught all of their recruits that... Um, these categories Hutu Tutsi and Twa was uh, were um, were politicized by the Belgian colonialists that before colonialism Rwandans lived together uh, in peace and harmony and that there were not uh, conflicts between Hutu Tutsi and Twa um, and that uh, Rwandans are one people uh, and that. Uh, these divisions of the past need to be forgotten and buried. Um, and these days in Rwanda, um, it's it's not just impolite, but it's it's really considered incredibly rude and even slightly politically dangerous to ask the question, hmm. "What is your ethnicity?" Um, or "What is your race?" in Rwanda. And I mean, you can understand this. Um, Given that in 1994, whether you lived or died in part depended on your answer to that question, Um, it can be quite hurtful to ask an individual that question. It can evoke a a very strong emotional response from them. Um, But it's also that Rwandans know that they're not supposed to be caring about these distinctions anymore um, that they're all Rwandan. So these days, if you ask a Rwandan, you know what are you?" the The answer to the question is, "I'm a Rwandan." Hmm. Um, which of course makes research it can it, it presents special challenges in research because yeah. um, you can't ask that question, although you know anyone designing a research study about Rwanda, We'll say, well, we have to know, you know, what percent of the respondents are Tutsi and what percent are Hutu. Um, the other reality is that sometimes the answer to that question isn't really straightforward. Uh, there was a lot of intermarriage in Rwanda in the 70s and 80s, even before that. Um, if your mother was Tutsi and your father was Hutu, you um, you you should be you should be then Hutu because it passed patrilineal from father to children, um, but um, many children of Tutsi mothers who had Hutu fathers were killed in the genocide. Hmm. Um, sometimes even by members of their father's family. Um, and uh, you know if you had a Tutsi father and a Hutu mother, you were. Tutsi um but sometimes your mother's family might protect you and hide you and save you other times they might uh kill you or cause you to be killed so um for these people sort of caught in the middle it can be quite complicated um and imagine being uh, a child uh, where your father's family is responsible for killing your mother and your siblings mm-hmm. it can be quite difficult um often in the aftermath of the genocide, these uh, people in mixed families found themselves rejected by both sides of their family. Um, Let's say you had a Hutu father and a Tutsi mother. Your mother's family would reject you saying, well, you're Hutu and you you killed our people and we don't want anything to do with you anymore. And then your father's family rejected you because they said, well, your people have put all of us in prison and um, we don't need to help you let your people help you. Um, And so uh, it can also be hard for people who have this experience of being both or being neither. Um, It's just easier to just be Rwandan.
1: Yeah, you, you talk about how at the same time, in some ways, you get the elimination of social categories, ethnic categories like Hutu or Tutsi. You get the emergence of new kind of categories, categories like victims or survivors of genocide, widows or returnees. And, and here you distinguish between old returnees and new returnees. Right? Can you really talk quickly talk about what those are, and then talk about what how that's impact individual people's attempts to come to terms with the past.
0: Yeah. So um, although the government has this policy of national unity, we don't talk about Hutu, Tutsi, and Tua anymore. Um, the, the, the problem or what becomes problematic is, of course, you can't talk about the genocide without talking about these things because it's what mm-hmm. caused you to be killed. Um, but it's also that the, uh, the genocide memorial sites and the annual commemoration ceremonies Um, They have a tendency to reinforce these categories because what what Rwandans talk about now instead is being a genocide survivor or being a genocide victim um, and or being a perpetrator or being a killer or being um, an old returnee. Old returnee means that. Your family went into exile uh, in the late colonial period or early in the post-colonial period, in the 60s or 70s, and you remained in exile until the RPF wins the war in 94, and then you came back. Uh, That's an old returnee. The new returnees are all of those civilians who went into exile in 1994, fleeing the RPF, um, and then who returned to Rwanda in 1996, 1997, or after Um, often not returning by choice, but returning by because they didn't have anywhere else to go. Um, And so these new categories of victim, perpetrator, old returnee, new returnee became stand-ins for ethnic talk. So the categories of victim, survivor, old returnee um, are sort of metonyms or replacements for this concept of Tutsi and perpetrator or uh, families who have members in prison or, um, new returnee became stand-ins for this concept of Hutu. Um, and so what happens then is that the commemoration ceremonies, because there's talk about the genocide, and I'm not saying that's wrong, of course that has to be done, but then what happens is that, um, there are, for example, uh, Hutus who were targeted in the genocide, because they supported the RPF or because they supported another opposition party or because they opposed the genocide, um, they often feel left out of that category of victim or survivor. Hmm. Uh, and so um, that causes uh, sort of new problems. And so this, these categories Hutu, Tuti and to have been replaced by these new ones, and so the distinctions don't entirely disappear.
1: And and one of the things you talk about, and, and you use the phrase amplified silence for this, is the way in which this kind of public strategy of remembering um, the genocide um, leaves people out and leaves kind of rhetorical strategies or strategies of remembrance out. So can you talk about what you mean by amplified silence and the impact it has?
0: Sure. So um, this concept of amplified silence, um, I use it both as uh, – a noun and as a verb. So, um, as a noun amplified silence is the, um, the intense public silence about, um, those experiences of violence that are excluded from public discourse. Hmm. So for example, uh, in late 1994 and early 1995, there were killings of Hutu by RPF soldiers. um, And in 1996 and 1997, in Zaire, in the refugee camps when they were attacked, many civilians were also killed there by the RPF. But these kinds of violences cannot be discussed publicly. And so I call this intense silence around those kinds of violences um, amplified silence. Um, But it's also a verb in that this... uh, occlusion or this prevention of discussing things publicly is a silencing. Um, and it's an intense silence. Um, and it's the kind of thing that it took, these are, this is one aspect of understanding post genocide wanted that took me a long time to get my head around. Um, it took me a long time to begin to recognize it in my data, to begin to recognize that there were things that people said, but there were a lot of things people left unsaid and those unsaid things were almost as important. Sometimes they were more important than the things they said. Uh, and then once I figured out that there were all these unsaid things, I had to figure out what were the unsaid things. <laughs> and then I had to figure out, so why is it, why are they unsaid and does this have a significance? And so I developed this concept concept of amplified silence, um, this theoretical concept to, uh, to explain sort of what's unsaid and how and why is it left unsaid.
1: So what's distinctive about the experience of women?
0: Yeah, well, women. Um, I do focus on women in the book, uh, and that was my intent, even in the research process, was to focus on women. I worked closely with women's organizations. Part part of why I did this is there um, have been two different theoretical tendencies in discussing women and war. Uh, one is that women are innate peacemakers. Because of their biology, their, their destiny to be nurturers and mothers, uh, women are more likely to oppose war. Women are more likely to not become violent. Women are more likely to also initiate peace building or reconciliation. Um, and the other tendency is to see women only as victims of war Mm -hmm. and that women uh, are passive. They just war sort of washes over them like a wave or something like this. And they're just left there bereft of everything. Um, and so I wanted to get at sort of what is the reality. Um, and I uh, in the book, I, I reject both of these two theoretical tendencies. Um, uh, I show in the book, or I try to show, the ways that women exercise their agency or they do things in response to war and in response to violence. Um, they make choices, no matter how limited those choices might be by the circumstance, they make decisions and they do things to try to get through the day, to try to survive. Um, in the genocide, this is deciding which way to run um, and where to hide their children and mm-hmm. who to trust their children to. And those are the kinds of decisions. In the aftermath of the genocide, it's to you know decide which of my neighbors can I ask to borrow salt from and which should I not approach and those kinds of things. Um, I, also, I also reject this notion that women are predestined or biologically programmed to be peacemakers. Um, Now in Rwanda, it is true though, that women were the ones who did a lot of the initial work, um, in civil society towards reconciliation, towards peaceful cohabitation, towards peace building. Um, But what I found is that women didn't do this because of some kind of biological predestination. Rather, it's their position in Rwandan society that gave them an opportunity to do these things. Um, In Rwanda, uh, women historically were the primary social interface between the household and the community. Uh, In that um, women were the ones who occupied themselves with cooking uh, for the household and managing the food for the household. So if if you were lacking salt to cook the meal, you were the one who organized to borrow it from a neighbor or you might organize with a neighbor to trade sweet potatoes for beans or these kinds of things. And so this historical position of women, um, both in terms of the political economy being this interface, but also having lots of social importance in maintaining relationships with other families. Uh, In most parts of Rwanda, most Rwandans are subsistence farmers and you can't get through a day or a week without relying on family, neighbors or friends to um, collaborate and cooperate um, to trade off uh, work and other kinds of things. And so um, what I found in my research is that in the aftermath of the genocide, women reached out to each other because it was the only, only real option they had to get through the day. Um, And one of the groups I focus on uh, was a group of women that was initially organized by a parish, a Roman Catholic parish priest in Southern Rwanda. Um, And he himself was a genocide survivor. He was sent by the bishop um, to this community to give mass uh, a few months after the genocide ends. Uh, And when he went to the community, what he found was The church was full of women and children uh, who just sat there, Hmm. who didn't do anything, who didn't speak. Uh, They were living off of food assistance they were getting from uh, international NGOs and from the government. Uh, And he he realized that, you know, I can't give mass to these people because they're not spiritually prepared to receive it. Um, because they don't, their basic needs aren't being met. Hmm. They don't have housing. They were staying in the church because they all of their houses had been destroyed. Um, and he talked to a few of the women, and he's like, "Why are you here?" And they said, "Well, I don't have anywhere to go. Um, I'm a widow. Uh, all of my all of my family's been killed. Uh, I don't have a house. Uh, I don't have clothes. I don't have food. Uh, and uh, there's no one to take care of me." Um, now according to Rwandan tradition, a widow should be taken care of by her surviving sons. Mm -hmm. Um, But if all your sons have been killed, then the the, what's supposed to happen can't happen. Um, And so initially this parish priest, he gathered together all the widows from the parish and he invited them to a meeting. And he said to them, listen, I, I understand that you're widows and I understand that you don't have anyone to take care of you. So I will be your son. I will be the son to all of you and I will do what I can to help you rebuild your lives. Now, of course there were, there were literally hundreds of them. um, So he couldn't individually help all of them. So instead he put them into, he organized them into groups based on where, where in the community they were from. They would, uh, the women's groups would meet. They would often begin their meetings by reading the Bible together. Um, they would, uh, the, The priest organized for them to borrow fields um, in the valleys from the local governments that they would then cultivate together. He found them, you know, hoes and seeds and the other things necessary to cultivate. So they would do work together. Um, They would pray together and then they would often create small little um, banks where they would each contribute a tiny bit of money each time they would meet maybe 10 cents. Um, And then when someone needed to go to the doctor or something, they could borrow from that money. Um, or they would share it to help each other out. <clears throat> um, so uh, what then later happened in this community is so many of these women, um, the widows that w- were in these groups, it wasn't only widows of the genocide. It was also widows whose husband had died um, from natural causes. Uh, win- widows whose husbands had died uh, in killings uh, by the RPF um, and widows whose husbands had died in prison. Um, but, uh, After about a year, um, the priest, he was approached by, uh, women whose husbands were in prison. They came to him and they said, listen, um, we've seen the work you've been doing with these widows. And first of all, we want to thank you because it used to be when we brought food every week to our husbands in the local jail, um, those, the children of those women would throw rotten food at us and throw stones at us and insult us. And the woman with the widows would say terrible things to us. And, um, they said, you know, now they've stopped doing that, um, which makes it less hard for us to bring food that we need to bring every week. Um, and they said, but we also, we have the same kinds of problems. Those women have, we have no men at home. Uh, we don't have anyone helping us. Um, and we see what you've done with them. Can you do the same for us? So he then organized uh, the women whose husbands were in prison into small groups. Um, Now, initially they met separate, and there was some difficulty. The widows at first were a little bit opposed to this. um, But eventually um, he managed to work it all out, and there was a nun who worked with him on this. Um, And then eventually they brought together the leaders of the widows and the leaders of the wives whose husbands husbands were in prison and they began collaborating together and working together and i can't say not not every member of the genocide widows small groups they weren't all okay with this but um they eventually found a way out um the priest organized to bring for example someone who um could talk to the women about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and how to deal with psychological trauma, how to recognize symptoms that are affiliated with it, the kinds of things you can do to cope with it in your daily lives. Um, and then he organized sort of economic uh, assistance and development projects. Um, so the last time I visited the, these groups of women was in 2011. You know, they had, a, they had built a greenhouse. They were growing tomatoes to sell in town. Um, they had uh, distributed livestock, goats and cows, to women in, in the groups, and they were, they were. The plan was then, when the goats and the cattle would have uh, babies, they would share them with other women in the groups. So there were lots of kinds of activities, um, but in essence, what these groups did is they did provide this economic assistance, um, but also they provided this moral and emotional assistance to people and sort of became surrogate families particularly for those whose um families had all been killed.
1: <laughs> That's a fascinating story and and oh. For our listeners, I, I strongly encourage you to to get the book and read the book. There are lots of similar narratives that that Jenny mines for insights and and the phrase you use this this and i 'm not going to be able to repeat it exactly, but this idea that when things don 't work the way they are supposed to work, what do you do now um, is a fascinating question as as frankly and this is a different direction that we won't go now, but is the question of religion and Christianity in Rwanda after the genocide as well. But, but we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, and, and thank you so much. I have just a couple questions in conclusions. And, and the first is, um, aside from the publisher's demand for a catchy title, why did you choose this title?
0: Oh, thank you. Um, actually, uh, if I can say it, uh, I didn't choose this title, but it chose my book. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Genocide lives in us. This is the response uh, a a genocide survivor gave to me to explain what it's like to survive genocide. Um, I had shared with her the story of of another genocide survivor friend and the the struggle she was facing, and she said, yes, that is how it is for us. The genocide lives in us. Hmm. Um, And initially, I understood... Even at the time she said it, I, I, I found it to be quite poetic and quite uh, it captured sort of a, an essence of of what life and the aftermath of genocide is like for people. Um, but I also found that it captures uh, the sense of what having survived genocide is like also for um, Hutu in Rwanda, whether they were targeted in the genocide or whether they participated in the genocide, you know, they also carry the genocide with them. Um, so the title, in my opinion, it, it sort of captures the ways that Rwandans of all ethnicities are haunted by the genocide. Um, they can't forget it because it sort of lives inside their bodies. Um, and it sort of captures the sense that um, a lot of the sort of psychosomatic symptoms of trauma that people have is sort of one manifestation of this. It's their memories um, and it's also the moral responsibility that those who participated in the killing have um, and that they can't escape it. Um, And We can even broaden it out that sort of the possibility or the potential for genocide lives in all human beings. It's not that Rwandans are any different than the rest of us. Uh, They just in 1994 lived at a particular historical moment where genocide became possible.
1: So, so the last question, um, what are you working on now?
0: Oh, thanks. Um, I'm doing another research project in Rwanda, um, also about genocide. Uh, this project is trying to understand sort of the intrinsic and extrinsic motivations or the internal external motivations of rescuers during the genocide. Um, So we're trying to understand um, there have been other social scientists, Scott Strauss, Leanne Fuji who've studied in depth sort of the motivations of perpetrators and why Rwandans became involved in killing in the genocide. Um, I'm trying to understand sort of the opposite of that sort of those. Why did people put themselves at risk of death to save Mm -hmm. and help Tutsi in the genocide? Because that was the reality. If you were caught hiding Tutsi or helping Tutsi, uh, you would be killed. Um, and uh, there, this did occur. Um, there were people who did it. Um, one other aspect we're trying to investigate is the differences between Christians and Muslims uh, on this factor at in 1994, Muslims are a very small portion of the population, between 3 and 5% at the most. Um, probably 3% is more accurate. Uh, and what's interesting is we found some communities where the Muslim community as a community organized to save Tutsi and protect Tutsi. Um, and you can't – I haven't yet found the same for – communities of Christians. I have found Christians who did that. I have found priests and pastors who tried to save people, um, but not at the same level of organization. Uh, And so that's what we're working on now. Uh, We're in the midst of fieldwork for that. And I'm hoping in another uh, two years, if we're lucky, we'll start publishing the results of that study.
1: Well, that sounds fascinating. Um, And I'm impressed that your goal is two years rather than 15 (laughs) Um, but when you're done you'll be willing to come back on the show and talk about your new book and um, I really enjoyed the book uh, that you just finished and the interview we had so thank you very much
0: well thank you so much Kelly it's my pleasure
1: All right. thanks take care you've been listening to an interview with Jenny Burnett author of the new book Genocide Lives in Us Women, Memory, and Silence in Rwanda if you enjoyed this interview You can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll interview Philip Dwyer and Lindahl Ryan about their edited volume, Theaters of Violence, Massacre, Mass Killing, and Atrocity Throughout History, as well as the special issue of the Journal of Genocide Research that the two co-edited. Until then, I hope you have a great month.